Hej, and velkommen to the history of Denmark. Episode 12, A New Dawn. Hello everyone. Last time we took a look at the geography of Denmark and allowed ourselves to take a few detours to cover some other things. Today we will continue with the narrative where we left off two episodes ago, the year 1316. King Eric VI, also known as Eric Mendel, had feuded with various rebels as well as two successive archbishops of Lund, first Jens Gran and after him Esker Juhl. In the year 1316, his brother Christopher, who was the Count of Halland, decided to mobilize the remaining rebels and make his bid for the throne of Denmark. Eric had tried to revive the expansive foreign policy of Valdemar the Victorious by securing the overlordship of the German cities on the southern coast of the Baltic Sea. However, his over-reliance on mercenaries meant that his wars were very expensive, and so he felt the need to introduce extra taxes on the people. This was the main cause for the rebellions he faced, and his response was to crush the opposition, then force the peasants to construct castles for him so that he could more easily control them the next time. This all took place in 1313. As we mentioned last time, Christopher's first action was to invade Scania and Funen. The fighting took place during 1316 and 1317, with Christopher coming out on top. The two sides quickly signed a truce though, and the civil war died down. However, this was the final straw for the royal treasury. With the harvest failing year after year since 1315, the king was now forced to take drastic measures to pay for his troops. He therefore began to pawn the provinces of Denmark. The entirety of Funen was sold off to the German counts Johann and Gerhard, and the marshal of Denmark named Ludwig Eberstein bought Scania, and a few castles here and there were also pawned. As if this wasn't enough, the old feud with the Archbishop of Lund resurfaced, and Esker Juhl declared the king excommunicated from his safe position in the castle of Hammershus on the island of Bornholm. In 1318, the Archbishop aided Christopher in another invasion of Scania, but this endeavor failed. Esker Juhl was forced to flee to Germany, when the Marshal of Denmark conquered Bornholm. With his policy of pawning off Danish lands to the German counts, Eric Menville completely undermined his own authority, and the financial situation was not fixed in the long term. He died in November 1319 with no surviving sons. His alliance with Birger Maunson of Sweden also failed, as Birger eventually executed his two rebellious brothers. This action made him so unpopular that he had to abdicate to his young son and flee the country. When this young king was then tried in court and himself executed, the throne of Sweden fell to a son of one of the brothers. Now, you may remember from two episodes back that there was a bit of marriage intrigue involved in this Swedish question. The issue was that one of the rebellious brothers, who was named Eric, had broken with an agreement not to marry Ingeborg, who was the daughter of the king of Norway. Ingeborg had no brothers, and so she was first in line to inherit Norway after her aging father Håkon. When Eric married her anyway, he was perceived by both Eric Menville and Birger Maunsen as a threat. Now the result of all this was that the son of Eric and Ingeborg, Maunus Eriksson, inherited Sweden from his granduncle Birger Maunsen, and through his mother he was proclaimed King of Norway as well. 
This was in 1319, when Maunus was just three years old. Regents would rule in his place, but when he came of age in 1331, he would prove a formidable opponent to the King of Denmark. The royal lines of Norway, Sweden and Denmark had begun to converge, and although nobody could have known it at the time, in the last part of the 1300s, this would have huge consequences. With Eric Menville dead with no heir, Christopher ascended to the throne as Christopher II in 1320. His election was decided by Marshal Ludwig Eberstein, who wielded great power in Denmark, as he had bought Scania from Menville. Christopher was thus forced to sign a charter which reflects the political balance at the time. The aristocracy was in control now, and the power of the king was greatly diminished. Here are some of the terms of the charter. All the castles that Eric Menville had forced the peasants to construct in 1313 had to be demolished. No Germans were allowed to control castles in Denmark, and neither were they allowed to sit on his royal council. The bishops were no longer required to contribute men to the king's armies. Clergymen could no longer be judged by secular courts. Bishops could no longer be arrested without permission from the Pope. The aristocracy could not be forced to fight outside the borders of Denmark. Any taxes put on the peasantry after the reign of Valdemar the Victorious were abolished, and the king had to promise not to construct new castles or introduce new taxes. Again, notice that the power of the king is almost non-existent at this point. This situation will not change until 1340, when the kings of Denmark once again assert their authority. Even though there was a new king on the throne, the long-running conflict with the archbishop was yet to be resolved. It took four years to negotiate the terms, and in the end, only the death of Esker Yule solved the issue. Christopher II continued his brother's aggressive foreign policy, which of course required financing. This meant that he had to introduce extra taxes, which of course was a violation of the charter he had signed when he became king, and we have civil war again. While much of the land had been sold off, Christopher managed to raise the armies of Zealand and Scania, and he put his son Eric, who was his co-king, in command. Things did not go as planned though, as the troops mutinied and imprisoned Eric. When his father heard of this, he fled the country, effectively surrendering to the German counts Johann and Gerhard, who led the rebellion. They chose the 11-year-old Duke of Schleswig, named Valdemar, who was a descendant of Abel, as a puppet king. He was forced to sign a charter similar to the one agreed to by Christopher II, with the added condition that the Duchy of Schleswig and the Kingdom of Denmark could never be ruled by the same person. This new principle was called the Constitutio Valdemariana, and thus Count Gerhard, who was also the king's regent, now became the new duke instead of King Valdemar III. Meanwhile, the grain crisis continued to worsen. Even though less and less grain was produced, prices still fell all across Europe, and the peasants were forced to abandon their farms or shift their work towards cattle raising or butter production. These types of agriculture required less labor and were thus better suited to the new situation. This crisis, along with the fact that the German counts Johann and Gerhard now ran the country, led to deep dissatisfaction among the land-owning farmers, who were especially numerous in Jutland. In 1329, the dissatisfaction brewed over into rebellion against Gerhard. Although he managed to defeat the rebels, the uprising weakened his position. 
As so often happens when two people share power, they begin to desire control for themselves. Count Johan bought Zealand and Scania from the crown that same year and decided to invite back Christopher II to Denmark to resume the office of king. Military conflict broke out between the German lords who battled on the island of Zealand throughout 1330, but they decided to divide Denmark between them. Valdemar III was removed from power and Christopher II reinstated as king. He only controlled the northern part of Jutland though. Gerhard was the master of the rest of Jutland, Schleswig and Funen, with Johann controlling the eastern parts. The year after, in 1331, Christopher decided to make his move and attacked Gerhard. This war lasted for about two years and resulted in a devastating defeat for the Danish king. Not only did he lose the Battle of Low Heath and all of his lands in northern Jutland, but his son Eric also died. After this, Christopher II was king in name only, and he died in disgrace the same year, 1332. In the east, Count Johan sold off Scania to Maunus Eriksson, the double king of Sweden and Norway, who was now 16 years old. The price was 70,000 silver marks, but Maunus was happy to pay up in order to receive control of the Scanian herring market. From 1332 to 1340, a period of interregnum took place, where there was no king of Denmark. Either Gerhard and Johan did not find it necessary to set up a puppet, or they could not agree on a candidate. In 1334, the eldest son of Christopher II, named Otto, attempted to claim the throne, but he was defeated in battle and imprisoned by the German counts. But there was one final son of Christopher remaining. With Eric dead and Otto imprisoned, it fell to the 17-year-old Valdemar to assert his claim to the Kingdom of Denmark. He will be known as Valdemar Adderday, his epithet roughly translating to a new dawn. Valdemar was born around 1321 during the first years of his father's reign. He lived the first six years of his life at court in Denmark, but when his father fled the country in 1326, Valdemar was raised in exile and spent his childhood years at the Imperial German court in southern Germany and later in Brandenburg. His grandmother was from this area and his sister was also married into the noble family there. The princely educated young man became the rallying point for the Danish opposition to the German counts who had taken over the power in Denmark. After eight years without a king, Count Gerhard and Count Johann had been sucking the peasants dry of tax incomes and they became worried about rebellions. They were right to worry. As described in the contemporary Chronicle of Jutland, the nobles of Jutland rose in rebellion in the year 1340, and it was all sparked by a single man, Nils Ebbesen. Nils Ebbesen was a member of the lower nobility in Jutland, and he became a national hero when he assassinated Count Gerhard on the 1st of April 1340. The German count had raised an army of 11,000 men, and had led it up through Jutland to collect the final taxes before withdrawing. He was staying in the city of Rannas with 4,000 men, having divided his forces. Nils Ebbesen entered the city with only 47 men and hid until night came. Then he entered the building where the Count was staying and hacked off his head. The men then ran to the bridge spanning the Gudeno, a major river which runs through Rannas. The bridge had been prepared for demolition beforehand, so when the men were safely across, it was destroyed, earning Nils Ebbesen some breathing room. 
Ironically, this daring assassination took place right as the Germans were preparing to leave the country, but nonetheless, it marks the beginning of an uprising against the Germans. They approached Valdemar in Brandenburg to settle an agreement, and on the 22nd of April, just three weeks after the murder of Count Gerhard, a deal was reached. Valdemar would marry the sister of Valdemar III, who was now back in position as Duke of Schleswig. He would gain the northernmost part of Jutland, and then gradually buy the remaining lands back from the German nobles. He was crowned as King of Denmark in the summer of 1340, and he immediately began his lifelong work of restoring the authority of the crown. He issued amnesty to anyone who had fought against his father or anyone else from his family, and began taxing his subjects in order to raise the money needed to claim the rest of Denmark. Meanwhile, Nils Ebbesen continued his rebellion against the Germans, probably to the delight of Valdemar IV. On the 2nd of November 1340, however, while besieging a castle, 600 German horsemen approached the rebels, and, fearing that he would be trapped between the city walls and the other forces, Nils withdrew to a nearby hill. He managed to fortify the position, and when the first attack came, they were beaten back. The second time, though, the German forces broke through the fortifications and surrounded the 2,000 Danish men. They were all killed. Nils Ebersen's body was mutilated and displayed on a pike, but it was removed by his friends during the night. As I said, he became a national hero, and was featured in a play by the author Kai Munk, who lived during the 1900s. The play was written during the Second World War, when Denmark was once again under German occupation, and Nils Ebersen rose as a symbol of the Danish resistance. The play was of course banned by the Nazis, and Kai Munk was eventually hunted down by the Gestapo and murdered. Across the Baltic Sea, in the Duchy of Estonia, the natives were planning an uprising against the Danish and German occupation. In 1343, they coordinated a massacre of the Germans and Danes, and renounced Christianity. Tallinn was besieged by an army 10,000 men strong and the Estonians sent emissaries to the King of Sweden and to the Russian neighbors to try and get some help, but no notable reinforcements came. Eventually the Estonians were defeated, but not before taking all of the major Danish cities in northern Estonia and killing many Germans. The Teutonic Knights proved superior on the battlefield though, and they crushed the uprising after a few years. The St. George's Night Uprising, as it is called, weakened the Danish grip on Estonia so much that Valdemar IV decided to sell the entire duchy to the Teutonic Knights. The 19,000 silver marks he received as payment were used to buy more of the pawned land from the Germans in Denmark. Although the overtaking of Jutland went as planned, Zealand, Funen and some of the other islands were ruled by Germans subservient to Count Johan, and they resisted the agreement. Therefore, Valdemar IV had to take these places with military force, and he did just that between 1340 and 1360. Also during this period, shortly after the sale of Estonia, Valdemar made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to gain remission from his sins. He also stopped by the Pope in Avignon in France, who awarded him with the papal honor, the Order of the Golden Rose. Valdemar impressively managed to secure royal authority over the church, in an agreement where he received the right to appoint bishops in return for the Danish church paying taxes to the Pope. The sudden progress on this matter of investiture is likely the result of a lack of papal influence in Denmark during the reign of the German counts, who completely sidestepped the church. 
Valdemar Adderdag's reign can be divided into two parts. In the first 20 years, from 1340 to 1360, the king focused on consolidating his power, and in the final 15, he focused on foreign policy. Before we get to that, we still need to get through some of the economic and legal reforms made by Valdemar. After the plague, also known as the Black Death, hit Denmark between 1348 and 1350, killing as much as a third of the population, the king sought to improve or at least hold on to his tax base. He tried to help independent peasants so that they did not have to sell their farms to richer farmers and thus become exempted from taxes. These richer farmers rebelled against him three times during his reign, but they were crushed each time, allowing Valdemar to confiscate more and more of their lands. He used his revenues to construct more castles, increasing his military power. Once he felt secure in his position, his final act before turning towards expansion was the signing of the Charter of the King's Peace in 1360. This document resembles a constitution, a contract between the king on one side and his subjects, the church and the nobility on the other. Valdemar might have been inspired by similar documents from other countries. He had, after all, spent his young years with the German Emperor, so he probably had some experience in this area. The aim of the Charter was to secure the peace in Denmark. After the many turbulent years of German rule, plague and rebellion, Valdemar wanted to ensure that he could wage war abroad without having to worry about further troubles at home. The document thus contains a number of promises by the king to his subjects and vice versa. The main gist of it is that the king must respect the legal rights and privileges of his subjects, remember to call Dane courts each year, and in turn his subjects must refrain from rebelling. With peace finally secured after 20 years of consolidation of power, Valdemar Adade was finally ready to earn his place in history as one of the most important medieval kings of Denmark. Scania had been bought by the Swedish king Magnus Eriksson years ago, and now was the time to reclaim it. The Swedish king was having trouble with his son Erik, who himself wanted to be king, or at least co-king. Erik had based himself in southern Sweden and rebelled against his father, so Magnus Eriksson appealed to Valdemar for help. The Danish king was of course happy to help, and even though he had promised Magnus that Scania belonged to Sweden now, he gathered his forces and invaded. Magnus did not suspect that Valdemar would break his promise, and so he ordered the Scanian citizens to hand over the castles to Valdemar. However, he had no intention of helping Magnus with his troublesome son, and in 1360, Valdemar could raise the Danebro over the cities of Malmö and Helsingborg, bringing Scania, Halland and Blekinge back into the Danish fold. The Scanian herring market was thus once more able to fill the royal Danish coffers with gold each year. Valdemar's next targets were the islands of Öland and Gotland, both of which are located on the eastern coast of Sweden, with Gotland being further out to sea. Both of these islands were important trading hubs for German merchants, as they were useful stopping points on the way to the Teutonic lands in the east as well as the Russian cities. Öland fell quickly, but the larger Gotland would need a bigger effort to subdue. The Danish fleet had been spotted by a watchtower on the southern coast of the island, and they had been warned in advance by the Swedish king that the Danes might be on their way. The king of Denmark landed in July 1361 with around 2,500 men and headed for the main city of Visby. The rich trading city did not have an army ready, 
and so was forced to rely on the peasants it could muster. Along the eastern part of the city wall, around 2,000 people had gathered to defend the city. The merchants and citizens inside Visby gathered on top of the 10-meter-high city wall and watched the battle begin. Much of what we know about the events at Visby comes from archaeological evidence. We can see that the peasant army was ill-equipped and consisting of old people and children as well as able-bodied men. In comparison, Valdemar IV's army consisted of battle-hardened veterans who had crushed peasant armies for 20 years, survived the Black Plague, and they were equipped with top-quality weapons and armor. The battle, if you can even call it that, proceeded as follows. The peasants of Gotland were arranged in a line of 300 meters with five or six ranks. Damaged skulls and skeletons found indicate that Valdemar's army bombarded them with crossbow bolts, a devastating weapon capable of piercing armor. After creating chaos among the enemy's ranks with arrow fire, Valdemar's army moved in and methodically massacred the remaining peasants. Many have had their legs cut off and their necks sliced, indicating that the soldiers went for the unprotected legs with their axes and swords, and then followed up with a strike to the head to finish the job. As many as 1,800 out of the 2,000 peasants were killed in the Battle of Visby, and Valdemar was able to enter the city, which surrendered immediately. He could then add to his list of titles, King of the Goths, a title which the Danish monarchs would stubbornly hold on to until 1972. The horrified citizens who had watched the massacre of their farmers from the city walls and their burial in mass graves outside the city had no choice but to pay a ransom in order to avoid the sacking of the city. According to legend, Valdemar placed three beer barrels in the middle of the town square and ordered the inhabitants to fill them with gold, silver and other valuables. In another act of intimidation, he tore down the city walls, a warning which meant that he could come back at any time and demand more money. If you go to the website, thehistoryofdenmark.wordpress.com, and look for the post for this episode, you can see a 19th century painting depicting Valdemar Adderday holding Visby for ransom in the manner I just described. Although the Battle of Visby may seem brutal, this was nothing out of the ordinary for medieval times. The capture of the islands of Öland and Gotland alarmed the German merchant cities. With Lübeck as their leader, many of these had joined cause in 1358 and formed the famous Hanseatic League, a political arrangement of merchant cities who wanted to protect their trading interests in the Baltic Sea and the English Channel. I've put a map on the website showing the extent of the Hanseatic League in the year 1400. The reaction of the Hanseatic League was to ally with Magnus Eriksson and launch an expedition to the Sound in 1362. Valdemar rushed to stop the approaching fleet before it could reach Copenhagen. As soon as he left Gotland, the inhabitants rebelled and the island slipped out of the grasp of Denmark. The king managed to intercept and defeat the expedition, but this was only the beginning of a long conflict between the German merchant cities and Valdemar Adderday. Shortly after this, the political situation in Scandinavia changed drastically. In Sweden, Magnus Eriksson was deposed by his vassals, and his nephew, Albrecht of Mecklenburg, was elected king instead. Albrecht managed to win the subsequent war with Magnus and imprison him. Remember that Magnus Eriksson had been king of both Norway and Sweden, but as a result of Albrecht's takeover, the two countries split again. Norway was ruled by another son of Magnus by the name of Håkon, 
as Eric, the other son who had rebelled against Manus, had died of the Black Plague a few years earlier. The other development in the political situation in Scandinavia was that Valdemar IV was plagued by succession problems. With his wife Queen Helvig, he had had six children, but three of these died in infancy. His only son to survive childhood was named Christopher, but he died in battle in 1363. His two daughters, Ingeborg and Margaret, were both married off, of course. Ingeborg was sent to Mecklenburg, where she became the Duchess. She bore Duke Henry of Mecklenburg a son, Albert. Margaret, meanwhile, was married to King Håkon VI of Norway, and she too had a son, Olaf. Thus, one of these two nephews would have to be named heir if Valdemar could not produce a son of his own. Today we have covered how Eric Menville died early, allowing the nobles of Denmark to cut a deal with his brother Christopher, who succeeded him as king. However, the charter he signed completely neutered the Danish crown, and during the period 1320-1340, power in Denmark was handed over to the German counts Gerhard and Johann, who bought off all the land and extorted the population. However, order and royal authority was revived by the young Valdemar IV, who spent two decades consolidating his power and repairing the damage done to his country. He then went on the offensive and took back Scania, Halland and Blekinge from Sweden and went even further, conquering the islands of Öland and Gotland. This finally stirred the attention of the newly formed Hanseatic League, who declared war on Valdemar. Join me next time on the History of Denmark podcast as we close off the story of Valdemar Adderday by covering his final decade as king. He will continue to feud with the Hanseatic League, and when he finally dies in 1375, the next ruler will lead the country into a new era, where the power and prestige of Denmark reaches a height not seen since Canute the Great ruled the North Sea Empire. Thank you.